This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In the mid-late 1970s, movie audiences around the world were both captivated and terrified by a new thriller that had many people reconsidering their next beach vacation. With Steven Spielberg's nail-biter Jaws smashing box office records, the film's concept soon became a franchise. The follow-up to the first release had the ominous tagline, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water. But moviegoers jumped in anyway making fictional shark attack films a genre onto themselves. It's basically a horror movie where the villain is not a person, but a creature lurking beneath the depths, ready to terrorize its victims. None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. The highly suspenseful and gory scenes are what keep audiences on the edge of their seats. The more realistic, the better. Of course, not all shark attack films are created equal. Depending on how much is in the budget and who's on the creative team, some movies can take the opposite direction. Features like this often gain a cult following for how incredibly unrealistic they are. Instead of providing electrifying jump scares, a gripping soundtrack, or an actual cohesive plot, you get movies like Sharknado or Sharktopus. Yet, no matter how completely outrageous or uncomfortably realistic a shark attack looks in movies, despite what Hollywood would have you believe, the risk of being ripped apart by one is minuscule. If anything, the people most likely to be attacked by a shark are those who make a living in the water, like deep sea divers or marine contractors. But as you're about to find out, this also applies to the film industry. There's an old movie saying that goes, never work with children or animals, and is a piece of advice that one stuntman should have followed before it was too late. Stunt work, on its own, comes with a unique set of risks. But add the element of an animal to the production, and you've increased the chances of an accident. According to reports, stunt work accounts for over half of all injuries sustained on set, which makes sense. Stunt people make a living performing death-defying acts that most of us could never be paid enough to do. Broken bones, concussions, burns, all to give audiences that wow factor. Unfortunately for one stuntman named Jose Marco, getting the right shot would end up costing him his life. And he's not the only one. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Shark, a powerful motion picture of blood-curdling suspense. One man against the organization. The man is Burt Reynolds. If they could stop him, the rest is easy. 
In the action thriller movie, imaginatively entitled Shark, Burt Reynolds played a gunrunner who found himself stranded at an outpost in the Red Sea. The valuable cargo his ship was carrying had sunk, putting him in financial ruin. Looking for a way to recover his losses, Reynolds' character can't resist the challenge to raid a shipwreck in shark-infested waters. The film was shot on location in the Mexican port city of Manzanillo in 1967. Despite the premise of the film, Burt Reynolds and his co-stars were not expected to spend time in the water with live sharks. That job was left up to Jose Marco, who was hired to perform all the underwater stunt work. The plan was to sedate all the sharks that were going to be used during the production. This would not only reduce the risk to the stunt actors and everyone on site, but it would also lower the studio's liability in the event anything went wrong, however unlikely. The movie was scheduled to shoot over nine weeks, much of which would be spent with the stunt coordinators in the water. It was during the filming of one of these stunts that something went terribly wrong. As an additional safety precaution, the sedated shark used in the scene was also separated from the stuntman by a protective net. However, with cameras rolling, the shark easily broke through the net and went straight for Jose Marco. The attack was violent and bloody as he was mauled to death. Shocked and terrified, the cast and crew could only watch as the stuntman was killed in the most gruesome way imaginable. During the investigation, it was revealed the shark used for the scene had not actually been sedated at the time of the fatal attack. Others claimed that another great white shark had wandered into the filming area and broke through the netting. Either way, there was nothing anyone could do. These days, if a death occurs on set, it's treated with the respect and discretion the victim deserves. But in 1969, the year of the film's release, the studio generated controversy for their unquestionably tasteless approach to the tragic death of one of their crew members. Studio executives tried to cash in by using the on-set attack to promote the film. They changed the original name of the movie from Kane, which was actually a story about treasure hunters, to Shark. In a truly grotesque bit of PR work, the studio even provided a series of photos to Life magazine, showing the gruesome attack frame by frame. Some of those pictures ended up in the June 7, 1968 issue. The film's director, Sam Fuller, was so outraged by the sleazy, disrespectful way the movie was promoted that he demanded the studio remove his name from the credits. They refused. In the end, however, the joke was on the studio, with the movie bombing at the box office and achieving a dismal score of only 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. Most people are familiar with the Old Testament story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood. 
You may have even seen the most recent reboot from 2014 starring Russell Crowe. The waters of the heavens will meet the waters of the earth. We build a vessel to survive the storm. We build an ark. Did you know the biblical story has had over 20 incarnations since filmmaking began? For the purposes of this story, though, we're not talking about a CGI, digitally enhanced version with all the special effects added in post-production. We're talking old school. Back in 1926, shooting was underway for the Warner Brothers' new vision of the classic story. This was the first version to be made into a movie, and filming it was memorable in more ways than one. By the mid-1920s, Hollywood was making the transition from silent movies to talking pictures, and Noah's Ark was part of the new generation. When it came time to film the iconic Great Flood scene, the studio chose the famous Iverson Movie Ranch in California. For maximum impact, the sequence required hundreds of extras. So, it was all hands on deck. It would also require careful supervision of the way the water was released, because of the massive amount being used. Safety should have been top of mind for everyone involved, but it seems the director cared more about getting the shot right. In fact, as the huge cast of extras and crew got into place, the head cameraman reportedly voiced concerns, but those were brushed off by the director. So, when the word ACTION was yelled from behind the cameras, a staggering 600,000 gallons of water was released. That's about the same amount of water it takes to fill up an Olympic-sized swimming pool. The sheer force as it rushed over the set was so great that scores of extras, including a young John Wayne, were swept away in the very real flood. When the water finally settled, three people were dead and dozens of others were severely injured. One person had to have their leg amputated, while many others sustained broken bones and head trauma. A reported 35 ambulances rushed to the set to treat the wounded. Thanks to the cold temperature of the water, many developed pneumonia, including the leading actress. While the real-life body count from the onset disaster was far from biblical proportions, it was a different story for the film industry. New regulations were soon introduced, providing much-needed safety standards and guidelines. Perhaps not surprisingly for the time, there were no legal repercussions for the studio or director. There was also no compensation awarded to the families of those who were killed that day, or to those who were left permanently disabled as a result of the studio's negligence. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
It would be amazing if the lessons learned from the 1928 version of Noah's Ark helped to prevent all future on-set accidents. If it just helped improve working conditions for actors and crew, it might be considered to be worth it. But even decades later, questionable practices were still being used to ensure the studios delivered projects on time and on budget. It really didn't matter to them if some people had to pay the ultimate price in return. The 1983 sci-fi horror movie, Twilight Zone, is known for being an anthology-style remake of the hit 1960s TV show of the same name. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. The concept for the film was a great idea. Four popular directors, including Steven Spielberg, would each put their own twist on four separate stories originally from the classic TV series. The only exception was the prologue segment from director John Landis, entitled Time Out, which was totally new. The original segment was meant to attract moviegoers from different generations. Spielberg and Landis were also producing the film, which went a long way to help ensure the movie would be a commercial success. Shooting began in mid-1982, and the budget for each segment of the movie was tight, only $3 million. This resulted in corners being cut when it came to paying cast and crew. Nevertheless, the project forged ahead. But it wasn't long before tragedy struck the set. On July 23, 1982, John Landis was overseeing the filming of his segment. They were on location at a river near Santa Clarita, California. In the final scene, the segment's main character, played by actor Vic Morrow, was scripted to rescue two Vietnamese orphans from a war-torn village. He would then take both children and escape through the shallow river as a helicopter overhead destroyed the village. The scene called for a series of spectacular explosions to be included. However, during filming, as the helicopter hovered about 25 feet over the exploding fireworks, its tail rotor was damaged. The pilot lost control, and the aircraft plummeted to the ground. Vic Morrow, who was carrying the two children below, died instantly as the helicopter blades removed his head. The two child actors, six-year-old Renee Shin-Yi Chen and seven-year-old Micah Din Lee, who were playing the orphans, were also killed instantly. Like Morrow, one was decapitated while the other was crushed by the weight of the downed helicopter. A helicopter crash near Magic Mountain today brought tragedy to the set of the Steven Spielberg movie, The Twilight Zone. Actor Vic Morrow and two small children were killed when the chopper came down as they were shooting a war scene. Not long after the crash, it was revealed that John Landis had actually violated California child labor laws, the scene in question had been shot at 2.30 in the morning, clearly breaking the rule that prevents children from working at night. There was more. State law also prohibited children from working in close proximity to explosions. It seems Landis did his best to hide the infractions, paying the children off the books for their work. Less than a week after the accident, the National Transportation Safety Board seized all footage of the incident for its investigation. 
The film showed that uh, during the second explosion, the aircraft rotated to the right and descended. And during this descent time, the uh, main rotor blades did strike the three persons on the ground. You haven't determined the cause. Uh, the fact is, is that everything happens so fast until we take stills and view it frame by frame. We can't really be certain. Over the weekend, Bell helicopter engineers and air safety officials went over that downed copter from stem to stern looking for answers for their investigation. The investigation continues. As of now, there are many unanswered questions. The following month, parents of one of the children killed filed a $200 million lawsuit against everyone involved. In a statement, they claimed to have no idea how dangerous the scenes involving their child would be. Shortly after the crash, a parent who was there during filming was instructed by an associate producer not to tell anyone, including fire safety officers, what their child was doing on set. It was obvious to them that neither the studio nor the crew in general were concerned about keeping their children safe during filming. The allegations and subsequent review resulted in fines against John Landis, his associate producer, production manager, and Warner Brothers Studios for child endangerment. Two months later, additional fines were issued by the California Division of Occupational Safety and Health to all those responsible. In April 1983, the L.A. District Attorney's Office announced that it would be investigating the helicopter pilot. They wanted to know whether his actions, or inaction, contributed to the disaster. The pilot responded by filing lawsuits naming Landis, Steven Spielberg, the studio, and the special effects crew. As that legal nightmare continued, parents of the other child actor filed a multi-million dollar suit against the studio, similar to the other family. Almost a year after the accident, John Landis, the helicopter pilot, and three other members of the crew were indicted on 15 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Not surprisingly, they all denied having any responsibility, though Landis did admit that he made the wrong decision about hiring the children illegally. Eight months later, the Transportation Safety Board released its report on the incident. Their findings showed that the tragedy was a direct result of numerous failures on behalf of the crew. The report singled out the special effects coordinator, who detonated two massive explosions while the helicopter hovered dangerously close to the ground. The National Transportation Safety Board is saying that that helicopter should never have been positioned as close as it was to a special effect explosive which had both debris and heat contained in it. The NTSB ultimately placed the blame with director John Landis, as he failed to provide adequate instructions to the pilot. The criminal trial began four years after the tragic events of July 1982. We know and the evidence will show explosions went off, the tail rotor was impacted, caused the helicopter, Your Honor, to lose anti-torque control, spin out of control, and crash on top of these two children, as well as Vic Morrow, killing all three of them. Despite the damning NTSB findings and pleas from devastated family members, 
In mid-1987, a verdict of not guilty was handed down by the court. We, the jury, in the above-entitled action, find the defendant, John Landis, not guilty of involuntary manslaughter, as charged in count one of the amended information. A year later, the families of Renee Shinyi Chen and Micah Din Lee settled for an undisclosed amount. By this time, Vic Morrow's family had also filed a civil suit for the wrongful death of the late actor. That, too, was eventually settled out of court. The tragedy led to some drastic and much-needed changes to safety codes within the film industry. New protocols were introduced, specifically focused on child actors. When it came to stunts involving pyrotechnics, the state's fire marshal would now be responsible for enforcing safety regulations as part of the newly formed Motion Picture and Entertainment Unit. On June 24th, four acclaimed directors, George Miller, John Landis, Joe Dante, and Steven Spielberg, take you to another dimension. Despite the negative publicity, or maybe because of it, the film did quite well at the box office, taking in roughly three and a half times its original budget. In the end, John Landis decided not to use any footage of the two child actors who died on set in his segment of the Twilight Zone movie. Vic Morrow's performance stayed in, but disappointingly, neither Renee Shinyi Chen or Micah Din Lee were credited. Apparently, Steven Spielberg was so appalled by Landis's actions that he never spoke to him again. Of course, no story about infamous deaths on set would be complete without mentioning the case of Brandon Lee. It all happened during the filming of the 1994 cult supernatural horror hit, The Crow. In the movie, the 28-year-old actor plays a musician who returns from the dead to exact revenge for his murder and his fiancé's. Shooting began in early 1993 in Wilmington, North Carolina, and from the start, things were not going smoothly. There were concerns early on about safety on set. A crew member suffered severe burns when his lift struck live power lines. Incredibly, on the very same day, there were two more accidents. This left many on set wondering if the production was cursed. After all, Brandon Lee's father and martial arts superstar, Bruce Lee, had died 20 years earlier at the age of 32 under mysterious circumstances. On March 31, 1993, Brandon Lee was scheduled to film his death scene. According to the script, as Lee walked through a doorway, his character would be shot by his on-screen nemesis from a distance of about 12 to 15 feet. The prop weapon was a 44 Magnum Smith & Wesson revolver, which had already been used in a previous scene. There was no gunpowder in the weapon, but the gun was loaded with dummy rounds. Unfortunately, the cartridges were not the commercial ones generally used on set. The crew didn't have time to source the usual rounds, so they decided to create their own. They emptied out the gunpowder, so the pistol was effectively loaded with blanks. No one knew it at the time but a bullet from one of the fired blanks had remained lodged in the barrel. Apparently, the head firearm specialist had gone home before shooting had ended for the day. 
Following the script, with cameras rolling, Lee was shot in the stomach by his fellow actor. But instead of getting to his feet after collapsing on the ground, he just lay there. Even after the director yelled, cut, much to everyone's horror, he didn't move. Just what went wrong on the set is still not clear. Lee was holding a grocery bag rigged with an explosive charge to simulate a bullet hit. The gun was supposed to fire a blank, but something hit Lee in the stomach. Lee was rushed to the hospital, where he underwent emergency surgery. His injuries were too severe, and he died later that day. It didn't take long before rumors circulated suggesting that Lee's death was more than just a tragic accident. Some believed the young actor had been murdered. However, no criminal charges were laid following a police investigation. The question remained whether the film would be released, minus the footage of the actual shooting, of course. After a few delays for some last-minute script changes, some CGI wizardry to complete Lee's unfinished scenes, and renegotiations over which studio would release the film, moviegoers were finally treated to the now cult classic. The footage of Brandon Lee's death was never seen publicly, and was eventually destroyed by the studio. Unfortunately, these are not isolated incidents. There have been hundreds of deaths and countless more injured on movie and television sets around the world. In one case, almost half of the over 200 cast and crew on the set of 1956's The Conqueror developed cancer. Turned out, the movie set was built in an area of Nevada that had been the site of atomic bomb testing just a few years earlier. Over half the crew who got the disease eventually died from it. In another case, on February 8, 1989, a fire broke out during the production of a popular Indian television drama called The Sword of Tipu Sultan. The large studio where the show was being filmed had poor electrical wiring and an even worse ventilation system. As the temperature rose inside the building due to the extensive lighting system used during production, something caught fire, and it spread quickly. When firefighters finally put out the blaze, 62 members of the cast and crew were dead. The show's main star and director, Sanjay Khan, spent over a year in the hospital after sustaining burns over most of his body. To this day, the incident is considered the single worst on-set disaster in history. While there have been major improvements to safety, the industry still finds itself making headlines for all the wrong reasons. Since 1990, there have been almost 50 production deaths in the U.S. alone, including the most recent in New Mexico on the set of the movie Rust. The accident, which claimed the life of the film's 42-year-old cinematographer, is another reminder of how important safety guidelines are in an industry that proves time and time again how dangerous it can be. Making a killer movie might be hit or miss, but killing while making a movie is entirely avoidable. 
Today's tragedy is raising many questions about safety conditions in movie making as well as the labor laws. We continue to follow that breaking news on a movie set near Santa Fe. We know an accident on set has killed one person and injured another. The film's production company says the driver remains hospitalized in serious condition. The other driver was injured too. New details emerging from the deadly accident on the set of a popular movie franchise. A stunt double from the film says the company placed profits over safety and that she paid the ultimate price. Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.